This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We need to have a change in our mentality of of what what we what we think is beautiful, um, and and that we need to think of that we're, we're we're even if we have a messy lawn, like we're supporting wild bees, and that's a beautiful thing. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara and I love bees. Not enough to call myself a budding apiarist, but I appreciate them buzzing around in my garden. However, not a summer goes past without hearing news that our bee population is under threat, with the finger usually pointing at habitat loss or chemicals containing neonicotinoids. But in reality, there are a whole host of reasons why our vital bee population is in decline. And given they provide pollination services for every one in three bites of the food we eat, their survival is critical to our way of life. Our editorial assistant, Amy Barrett, spoke to University of Vermont environmental scientist and pollination specialist, Samantha Alga, about her work uncovering the secret life of bees, what is causing the decline in bee numbers and what we can do to save them. Um, so I'm Samantha Alger. I'm a, um, I'm a research affiliate at the University of Vermont in the plant and soil science department, and um, I'm also a environmental scientist and pollinator specialist at an um, engineering consulting firm called VHB in, in Vermont. And what does your latest research show? So our most recent publication, we tested uh, something that was broadly suggested by researchers and by um that that but it hadn't yet been tested and it was that diseases or specifically viruses are spilling over from managed honeybees into wild bumblebee populations and uh, we found compelling evidence that this is occurring that bumblebees were way more likely to be infected with viruses when they were collected near honeybee apiaries and we also found evidence that this could be that this transmission of viruses could be occurring through the shared use of flowers. And we found a very high proportion of flowers near honeybee apiaries, about 19% um, harbored these RNA viruses, whereas all the flowers we collected in sites where there wasn't a honeybee apiary nearby, 
they were all negative for the viruses. So again, kind of supporting that hypothesis that that apiaries, honeybee apiaries, could be um, hotspots for the transmission of these viruses between managed bees and and wild bees. And these honeybee apiaries, um, how many of them are there in in the U.S. and how big is beekeeping? Um, so the number of apiaries um, themselves is a hard number to to get at, but I can say that there's about twenty 22.6 million. Um, commercial colonies, and that doesn't take into account all of the hobbyist beekeepers. Um, the reason why it's a difficult number is that not all states have apiary inspection programs, and even the, the states that do, they don't all collect data on the number of hives and the number of apiaries in the state. Um, but we do have some pretty good numbers for commercial beekeepers, and so it's you know 2.6 million um, colonies, I think, in the in the U.S. currently. And how much do we know about bee populations, um, so not just the honeybees, but other bee populations across the states? So we know very little about most of the bee species um, in in North America, but we have the best data for the bumblebees, um, the the big fuzzy um, charismatic (laughs) um, species that are showing range contractions in, in the UK, as you've probably heard, um, as well as the US. Um, and we know the most about these bees because um, they were liked by early naturalists. Um, and so they collected a lot of specimens and we have a lot of historic data and we can compare um, the collections, the current collections with the historic data to, and we're seeing that there's been declines of a number of bumblebee species um, in North America. And um, we've recently listed our first uh, federally listed um, species, Bombus affinis. It's the rusty patch bumblebee here in the U.S. And um, that's a species that was really, really common um, only a few decades ago. And now they're they're um, they're quite difficult to find and they're endangered. And then here in Vermont, where I live, we've had three species um, in 2015 that were listed as either state threatened or state endangered. And so we see um, on a state-by-state basis, we see um, species uh, decrease, uh, species populations decreasing, but we also see um, there's a number of species that are becoming more and more common. And so really what the trends are, are showing is that we're seeing less of a, um, more of the really common ones, but less of the, of the rarer ones. And so um, a lot less diversity. Um, about In Vermont, we've seen a loss of about uh, I think 26% of historical diversity in this state. Wow. Um, what what kind of threats are facing bees across the state? Uh, so oftentimes in media, we hear that, oh, it's the it's this chemical, it's Roundup or it's, it's neonicotinoids or it's um, disease or it's this one thing that um, I think that everyone, the public really wants to be able to point their finger to a single smoking gun. But it's um, it's a multitude and it's a combination of, of threats and that includes um, habitat loss. So with land use change, we see uh, vast areas that are getting converted to to corn, for example, which offer nothing for bees, um, or you know, in, or uh, parking lots or you know, areas that are that were once really good areas for forage are are, be, are changing. Um, so bees are losing habitat and they're and they're foraging and they're nesting and um, foraging resources. 
We also know that bees are affected by disease. Of course, there's a ton of different pests and pathogens that both managed and wild bees are affected by. But I think that uh, the most concerning issue with that is the spread, um, the introduction spread of novel or exotic pathogens to to naive hosts. And, um, you know, we saw that with the the spread of the varroa mite um, in in honeybees. We see small hive beetles that came from Africa in honeybees. Um, and so, and then of course, Nozema bombay, which um, we think has been spread from the, from the commercial, from the spread of commercial bumblebee colonies that were sold. And we know that Nozema bombay um, was probably, it could be one of the reasons why we've seen a, a decline of bumblebee species. And so, um, so definitely pest and pathogens is, an, is another threat. And then also um, pesticides and herbicides. Um, herbicides, um, there needs to be a lot more research done there. But of course, you're killing if you're using herbicides to kill the wildflowers or what we think of as weeds. Um, that's you know affecting their forage. But um, also pesticides um, that we put on our agricultural crops to keep herbicides, or I'm sorry, herbivores from eating our food, are of course also um, can also affect bees. And so um, it's the multitude of these of these three things. So habitat loss, the chemicals that we use out in our environment and our and our on our agriculture, and um, disease and pests. And those uh, non-natives or pests and pathogens that you were talking about, is that are those the RNA viruses that you looked at in your latest research? So there's always um, so RNA viruses have been around for a long time, and they've been studied for a long time in honeybees. Um, but only more recently, we're detecting them in in native bees and in bumblebees. But it's not really clear if these viruses have been circulating throughout the pollinator community at large for a long time. Um, it's possible that um, that that's occurring. However, my research is finding that it looks like that honeybees are um, are the could be a, a good source for these viruses to wild bees, um, and so these. The viruses have been around in honeybees for a long time, but they really only became a big problem in honeybees with the introduction of the varroa mite to um, to North America and elsewhere, and that mite came from Asia. And those mites um, transmit viruses, the same viruses that have been around, but um, it's but because the mites transmit the virus directly to the hemolymph or or the blood of the bee. Um, then the viruses are able to to propagate quickly and cause symptoms in the honeybees, whereas previously um, honeybees might eat a virus and it would go through its digestive tract and it might not actually be able to get out into the bees, um, you know, system at large and cause issues. And so it's really the introduction of the varroa mite that have that have made viruses so dangerous to honeybees. Um, and uh, we also wonder whether that introduction of varroa mites um, that have made viruses more dangerous to honeybees could then have increased the the probability of spillover from from honeybees to wild bees. Um, and so while we don't think of these RNA viruses necessarily being all exotic or, or introduced, there are um, a number. So if we look harder, we find more viruses. Um, and so new viruses New um, combinations of viruses will show up. We'll find deadlier versions of viruses, um, and and there are certainly viruses that are elsewhere in the world that aren't yet here in North America. And um, you know, restrictions and bans on bee honeybee transportation um, and trade 
uh, in purchasing has one of the reasons for that is to kind of keep some of these other viruses that aren't here from from coming um, across our borders. And so the varilla mite that you mentioned, it came from Asia. How did that come um, to, to, to be so prevalent in the honeybee populations in the U.S.? Um, that's a great question. And I think the topic of a lot of research, um, but we don't really know how, uh, where exactly it, it started and how it spread so quickly, except that it's just a really, a really, really good um, parasite of, of honeybees. Um, so it started off in the Asiatic honeybee, which is a, is a different species. And, um, and they, and they, um, they, they don't cause the same, to the same extent of damage that they cause to our honeybee Apis mellifera um, here in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, they just are very, their life cycle is very well timed with our, um, with, with the species. And they, uh, we just, we, I don't think we were prepared for it um, when it came. Uh, and so since then, over the past, I guess it was, you'll have to fact check this, but I think it was introduced in the in the late 80s, early 90s. And so, and since then, we've come up with a slew of different chemical treatments, conventional, organic. Um, there's different uh, cultural practices that we, that beekeepers employ to kind of keep varroa mites at bay. And um, and so those those methods have been developed over time. And um, are you know in some in some ways they're working, but we're never going to eradicate the varroa mite. They're they're here, and it's just a matter of managing. Um, but there is another mite, the Tropolalaps mite, um, that's in Asia, and it's um, it's right now um, there's scientists that are studying it and see it's showing that the that mite also looks to be spreading, um, and. There's an issue. I mean, there's a concern because the tropolalaps mite could actually outcompete the varroa mite um, should it actually come here. And so, I think with what we've learned with the spread and the issues that varroa mite has caused, uh, that the varroa mite has caused, we're taking what we learned and hopefully um, and doing and taking precautions now. And there's there's researchers studying tropolalaps in this environment and trying to formulate and figure out um, mite management strategies already before it gets here. So hopefully we're in a much better place um, than where we were uh, decades ago when the varroa mite came. And uh, one other thing that we're doing to try to keep the tropolalaps mite um, away is uh, the US, in the U.S. here, we have the National Honeybee Survey. Um, it's funded by the um, the Farm Bill. Um, it's a USDA APHIS program. That's A-P-H-I-S. That's Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. And that program uh, serves to, at, number one is to just to try to detect early the presence of these exotic pests before they become a problem. And so um, there's, most states are involved and I help run the one in Vermont and we go out and sample honeybee colonies um, across 24 apiaries in the state every year. And those samples are tested and, and examined for tropolalaps. And so this is, you know, this is one of the precautions that that we're under that we're doing now to um, to try to, you know, take the things that we learn from Varroa and um, and learn from it and benefit from it. And so I wonder why doesn't the USA have any native honeybees? Oh, um, that's a great question. I guess it would be related to evolution, <laughs> um, and that they just. They didn't evolve here. Um, 
but I don't I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but they, you know, they were brought here by colonists um, in the, I guess, to Virginia in the in the 1600s um, for honey, really, not for pollination services. And um, and it's funny because most people here in the states don't know that honeybees aren't native to our to our country <laughs> to to North America. Everyone thinks that they're native and that they're part of the um, you know conservation efforts which has been interesting because here they're really just, they're an agricultural livestock animal. You know, that's, that's really how they're treated because they're not going to do that well out in nature, um, especially now with Varroa mites. Um, there, we do have some naturalized colonies, but um, not like there used to be. Um, and so, you know, they need to be managed by beekeepers um, for them to stay healthy in most cases. And it's, it's interesting to, to talk to the general public and to tell them that no honeybees are not, it, it's an, when honeybee when bee colonies are, are are dying. It's certainly an issue for for the economy and for agriculture, but it's not um, it's not really an issue from a conservation perspective because they're not native, and um, people seem to get surprised and I think also a little hurt by by that fact. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why. And so, if you know, say in America, the the majority of the population decided one day to stop eating honey that would mean that the honeybees eventually would not be managed and, and they'd disappear from the U.S., is that right? Um, well, I think it would have to take a complete overhaul of um, of agriculture because although, you know, honey is just one thing that the that honeybees provide for us, but number one, I think the number one um, way at which beekeepers make money from, from honeybees is through pollination contracts. And so, you know, this is, I think we talked about it a little bit before, but um, you know, about half of the 2.6 million commercial colonies that we talked about um, in the states are contracted for crop pollination. And so, you know, we'd have to decide that we weren't going to use honeybees for to pollinate our food crops anymore. Um, and then, you know, also we're not going to eat honey <laughs> and all people who are interested in beekeeping are going to stop beekeeping. And then um, I'm sure that there'd be a number of colonies that might exist out in the wild and in you know in tree cavities or maybe in people's houses for for a time, but um, if some pest like tropolilaps might gets introduced and people aren't able to um, to manage the colonies in the wild, they they might blink out. You know if there aren't resistant genetics out there in the wild. But yeah, the and so in terms of like the overhaul of our agricultural. Um, what that would what that would mean is we the way we grow our food in these huge monocultures. I mean, this is like acres and acres and acres of the same crop. Um, as far as you can see, uh, it's just not we don't those those areas don't support wild bees. There's not places for the wild bees to nest. And although when crops bloom, they offer you know a lot of nectar and a lot of pollen, but it's in a short period of time. You know, maybe a couple weeks. For almonds, it might be three weeks. Um, but then after they bloom, if there's nothing else around for them to eat, there's it's not going to support a, um, a robust wild bee community in that area. And so farmers can't take advantage of the of the free pollination services that wild bees provide because they're just it just isn't the habitat for them. And so to to you know say we're not going to utilize honeybees for crop pollination would mean we're going to have to completely change the way that we grow our food to support wild bees so that way farmers can still 
get the pollination services to their crops that they need to produce the food to support our growing uh, population. So can you tell us a bit, a bit more about how um, beekeepers and farmers work together? How, how do honeybees uh, come into that, that pollination? Yeah, so beekeepers, you know, they'll manage, um, you know, sometimes thousands of, of honeybees, the big, the big commercial beekeepers. And um, they have uh, brokers involved and um, truck drivers involved. And they, through a process of brokering, and um, they sign on contracts with these growers. So, for instance, we'll talk about like almond growers, for instance. Um, and they will contract a number of colonies to the almond uh, growers for the period of almond bloom. And I think it's, I think it's around a hundred or two hundred dollars a colony, um, somewhere around there, that they'll get uh, for bringing their bees to to the almond fields. And so um, they'll, you know, truck drivers will put hundreds of or thousands of bee colonies um, on trucks and bring them out during that one period of time of almond bloom. Um, and for almonds, it's, I think it's each, yeah, each acre of almond requires an average of two honeybee colonies. So it's a lot, a lot of, of colonies in a very, um, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in an area. And um, so people who are, so for the almonds, if, for example, almonds require about 1.5 million honeybee colonies during those that month-long bloom. So when I say there's 2.6 million commercial colonies, about half of those are used for crop pollination, and all of them, pretty much all of them, spend time those three weeks um, pollinating almonds. But then, for beekeepers who are um, really on the road all the time with their bees, they'll travel. They'll go up to Maine for blueberries. They'll go down south for watermelons or or cantaloupe or, you know, squash. And so they'll spend most of the year on the road, just trucking their bees around for, from one crop to the next, to the next. Wow. And do we have to use honeybees for that? Could we keep apiaries of other species, other pollinators? Yeah. So the honeybees are really the most efficient bee um, for, for doing this in such, I mean, when you, when you talk about how meant, how many bees you need, and how big uh, of these these fields are, uh, you can't you can't um, you can't house and transport native bees in that that kind of quantity. Like a bumblebee colony might be a couple hundred individuals, and they don't overwinter um, as a colony. So there's an issue where you'd have to be starting out every single year. You have to start out with a new colony each year, um, and most of our wild bees are solitary species. And so, I mean, they, they are, they are done. Like we have alfalfa leafcutter bees that are really good at pollinating alfalfa for seed. Um, we've got, uh, blue, uh, blue orchard, uh, mason bees, which are really good for pollinating some crops. Um, so it's done, but it's usually done on a much smaller scale. But if you need a huge number of, of insect bodies, um, for a very short period of time, um, it's honeybees that are, that are getting utilized. Um, but you know, for some crops like, uh, tomatoes, for example, and green, greenhouse crops, um, bumblebees are the primary, um, pollinator that, that, that farmers will use, um, inside greenhouse crops, uh, because they do pretty well and, um, it, it doesn't, 
but there are so you can buy commercial bumblebee colonies, but those are that's a whole other issue. As soon as you start producing insects or anything at a commercial scale, you, there's there's always an issue where you have high densities. Um, there might be uh, high densities of the insect where they could uh, um, easily spread and transmit disease. And then if you then take them and put them out in the wild, um, there's an opportunity there where you're just spreading disease from these commercial colonies into the wild. Um, and so uh, any anytime you try to take an animal and then try to domesticate it and farm it, you know, there's all these issues that come along with it. And I wonder, going back to that spillover that, that you mentioned that you found in your, in your research, um, could you just explain how that happens? So how a col- uh, managed uh, honeybees could um, have this virus and how that could then spill over onto the wild bees around? Sure. So we don't really know if what's what, like what the mode of, of transmission might be. So um, you think about during the flu season and people are sneezing on their hands and then touching doorknobs, for example. Um, so, you know, we don't know whether it's through salivary secretions or through uh, feces. And so, um, but those are the two most probable methods or modes that these viruses might be getting transmitted because when bees forage on flowers, you think of a, think of a flower as like a, is like a dirty doorknob during flu season, right? It's just a, in, in the disease ecology world, we call it a fomite. It's sort of an inanimate object that might harbor a pathogen. Um, and so you think of a honeybee lands on a flower and um, what they're doing on that flower is walking around on it. They're um, getting pollen on their bodies. They're sticking their tongues in the flowers and, and drinking up the nectar. Um, and then once they get pollen on their bodies, they're sort of, they're coating it in salivary secretions. They're coating it in saliva and they're then sticking it to the sides of their body with this, you know, after they make it all sticky. Um, and so then they'll, they'll then tr- travel to the next flower and do the same thing. And some of those pollen grains that they might've put saliva on could fall off of their bodies onto that flower. Um, and then also during that process, they oftentimes will defecate or, and, and leave behind feces if they're, if they're traveling or if they're just sitting on the flower, they'll, they'll defecate. And so, you know, you can, it's funny, we, we look out onto our beautiful gardens and we see bees pollinating plants and you're not thinking about all these gross, uh, <laughs> sort of gross, you know, feces and salivary secretions that could be left behind by bees. But that's how we think um, this is occurring and that another bee will land on that flower and, you know, they're basically feeding from the same water hole, right? <laughs> and um, picking and then could possibly pick up the viruses through um, the salivary secretions or feces left behind on the flowers. And these viruses, they, they can't affect humans, can they? But what, what can they just affect bee species? Uh, yes, you're, you're right. Yeah, they're not, they're, they will not affect humans. And um, they've been detected in, like I mentioned, native bees, but not just bumblebees, other solitary species of bees. Um, but they've also been detected in, in um, uh, flies, like hoverflies and ants and beetles and butterflies. Um, but there's been very little evidence to show that these viruses are causing symptoms in in these other arthropod species. So it's possible that when you so when you do the molecular test to um, test for the virus, you can find virus particles, but that doesn't tell you whether or not the virus is actually active or not. Um, and so, uh, you know, if a, let's think of a, um, 
of a of a beetle maybe like uh, for like you know a flower beetle on a flower um, a honeybee might leave behind some salivary secretions that have a virus on it and then the beetle will eat some of that pollen and then if a researcher goes and scoops up that beetle and tests it we'll say well we found this virus in this beetle but when in fact the virus is just an inactive particle on a on a piece of pollen and if we had left that beetle for a little bit longer on the flower then that beetle might have just defecated and, you know, rid its body of the virus particle, and it would have never even caused any any harm to the beetle. And so that's the issue um, in this research is it's one thing to show that we've did so we say we detect viruses in these species, but it's another thing to show that they're actually causing um, harm and causing symptoms in the species. Um, what's sort of unique in our study is that we, um, we, we tested for virus replication in our bumblebees that we that we sampled uh, to show whether or not um, the viruses are actively replicating. And it's this method of where we 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 um, I don't know how detailed you want me to get, but we sort of we fish for the negative strand of the virus, which which means that the virus is actively replicating because it needs this this negative strand to make copies of itself. Um, and so if you find this negative strand, it it, it means that the that the viruses are replicating. And so we did find, in fact, that these viruses were replicating inside the bumblebee host, and we found replication was more likely, um, I think, just in deforming virus um, when the when the honeybees were were collected near. I mean, sorry, when the bumblebees were near um, honeybee apiaries. And there's been a number of studies that have looked at the effects, or really not a number, or just a handful of studies that look at the effect of these viruses on other. Um, bee species, not really the larger arthropod community. I haven't seen much for that. Um, and they found that deformed wing virus looks like it might cause wing deformities in bumblebees as well as honeybees. Um, Israeli Q paralysis virus looks like it also causes mortality, deformed wing virus, uh, in black, uh, yeah, mortality in, in bumblebees as well as honeybees. But we really, we know that the viruses can replicate inside the host, which means that they're, you know, they're able to switch hosts. Um, but we don't, we know very little about what symptoms they might cause in other bees besides honeybees and other insects. Is that something you are likely to look at next or, or what would you like to focus on next? Yeah, so that's, um, there's a huge gap there. Um, it's a little difficult to study that because you have to, um, well, you have to purify virus in a lab and then you have to, um, you know, you have to feed the virus to to, to commercial to colonies that you bring into the lab, and part of the issue when you um, are doing this work is you don't know whether the bees that you're feeding are already infected or not. And we tried to do a study like this in the past where we tested um, the effects of these viruses on on bumblebees, and um, when we ordered the commercial bumblebee colonies, they already came infected with the viruses that we were studying, um, and so that you know there's another issue right there is that these commercial um, bumblebee colonies could could be you know the, so bumble the commercial suppliers are feeding bumblebees in the lab they're feeding them pollen that was collected from honeybee colonies now with everything you know now about about how viruses are on pollen particles um, this would be a really good way to infect a bunch of bumblebees and then if these um, commercial suppliers are then selling their bumblebee colonies to farmers um, to pollinate different crops. There, they could be also spreading uh, the viruses that way. So it might not be just from honeybees. It could be from commercial from commercial bumblebees that are being fed honey pollen or honeybee pollen. Um, so one of the so that's sort of an issue with with doing the the studies. 
Um, but yes, I definitely would like oh, just as a next step to to look at the effects of these viruses on on, on bumblebees and, uh, and other bee species. Um, another big step for us is to try to demonstrate the transmission route of honeybee to flower and flower to bumblebee um, because we the the field study we did is very compelling evidence that this is occurring but um, just because we find these patterns out in the environment doesn't mean that it's absolutely definitely occurring right we have to take this into a controlled setting and demonstrate that honeybees will leave behind viruses when they're foraging and that bumblebees will pick up those viruses and then become infected um, to really nail down the transmission route. And um, that's something where we've, we're working on and we've actually done most of the experiments and are, and are writing up the study right now. And why did you personally start studying bees? Um, so I was, um, let's see. I was a so I was a business major as an undergrad, <laughs> um, and then I had an opportunity to to study tropical ecology and conservation in this uh, program abroad, and learned that um, about social insects through a through a, a program um, through through an, an independent research project on army ants, and uh, realized that you could be a biologist and you can study insects for a, for a living, which was uh, ludicrous <laughs> to me who grew up in a household where you could be a doctor or a lawyer or a, you know we didn't I didn't know that these things existed um, and I knew I was interested in conservation um, and but I wanted I wanted to to focus on my efforts on something that was important for not just for conservation um, you know as like a, in like a tree hugger kind of way but also that's important for for humans um, because that's where really the rubber meets the road and you can make um, you can make changes if, if people feel like it's an important um, initiative. And so with my interest in social insects, um, I found that, well, bees are, you need them for one of every three bites of food that you eat. Um, that's their, you know, they provide pollination services for so, for most of the food that we eat. And so the connection there was really strong that, you know, it's, it's good for conservation for, you know, wild bee conservation, but also, um, you know, it's important to humans. I think when we think of saving the bees, we often actually think about honeybees. Should we start really focusing our efforts onto other types of bees? Um, I think we should definitely broaden our efforts onto other bees. I think there's a lot of, um, I, I think that it'd be nice to just for people to understand that it's two separate issues. Uh, however, the fact that the public and um, and conservation issues, initiatives have focused so much on honeybees. Um, they're charismatic. People know what a beekeeper looks like, and people know how bees are kept on this incredible comb and this hexagonal structure. Um, it's all very charismatic, and people understand it. Whereas if you try to talk to people about a solitary bee that lives underground and they nest in these, um, you know, little tiny holes, it's difficult for people to, to take hold of that and feel like they're connected to it and and to try to make changes based on this, like, bee that's, you know, like a, a bee that they never even considered being um, existing, you know, that it might be green or blue. Um, and so I think that in some ways, we've, the conservation efforts for native bees have really benefited by the, by the public's attraction and connection with the honeybee. Um, but, you know, it can get a little bit, um, you know, off off um, off a little bit because 
if all of the fo- effort is, is focused on the honeybee, then we're missing the vast majority of species in the world. There's, you know, 20,000 species of, of bees in the world. And, um, and, you know, if we're finding that honeybees are causing problems for wild bees through either through um, the spread of disease or, or through um, maybe competition on flowers, that's, you know, that's a difficult thing to show, but people have tried um, between, between honeybees and wild bees, then, um, you know, then we're sort of, you know, we're missing, we're missing, we're missing, um, you know, the effort, the opportunities to, to make strides towards, towards helping the wild bees. Hmm. It's a real shame that, like you say, the solitary bees, because they don't seem to offer any um, benefit to humans, that we're, we're not as worried about them. Well, I wouldn't say that they don't offer benefit to humans. They are, they are fantastic pollinators of our of, of crops. It's just a matter of of making sure that there's the habitat to support them. So in Vermont here, we're we're pretty rural. We are farming. Our, our, our farming community is structured in such a way that the, the farms tend to be pretty small and we have a lot of wild habitat around in between farms. And some research here at, at UVM by my colleagues found that um, that blueberry growers produced way more blueberries um, when they had wild habitat around their farms and that their blueberries were really supported by wild bees. And, um, and so they're fantastic pollinators. It's just a matter of being able to support them around our crops to take advantage of that free pollination service. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, again, public education is, it's not that they're not doing anything for us. They are. It's just that, um, I think what my point was earlier was that people don't associate them. They're not, they don't have that childhood, uh, sort of curiosity or interest with wild bees because they just they hadn't been introduced to it at such a young age as they had been to to, to honeybees. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, what can people do to uh, help wild bees? And what, what can people at home actually do that's that would change and stop the decline? Right. Um, so, I think the number there's two big things, um, and that would be. Uh, to do what they can to create pollinator habitat. And so bees like really messy, messy, uh, messy fields, you know, we're talking about like snag, like trees that are, that have been, that have died, that are still standing and they, they have holes in them. You know, us humans don't like to look at those and they like, we like to take them down, but that's incredible bee habitat. Um, you know, messy brush piles or um, tussock, you know, areas where there's there's um, clumps of grass that bumblebees can nest down into and burrow into. Um, so all these these things that we we view um, as they're not aesthetically, they might not be aesthetically pleasing. They're not that beautiful cut grass that might be cut at an angle. <laughs> you know, um, we don't. That's what that's a that's basically a desert for bees. So it's sort of we need to have a change in our mentality of of what what we what we think is beautiful. Um, and, and that we need to think of that. We're, 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 even if we have a messy lawn, like we're supporting wild bees and that's a beautiful thing. Um, and so some things that have done, so in Minnesota, they offer now incentives for, um, changing over your lawn to pollinator friendly lawns, um, which is pretty great. So this is going to be mowing a lot less, which is, you know, it's better for the environment. It caught costs. Um, you know, you know, uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time on your lawnmower anymore if you let your lawn grow and let the wildflowers come up. And um, and the other big thing besides you know changing how you look at nature and and what we you know in our lawns and creating nice habitat and planting flowers for bees. Besides that, the other big thing is to avoid using uh, pesticides and chemicals on our on our home gardens and 
Um, I think in Vermont here, we just passed a bill that restricts the the use or the purchase of neonicotinoids to to homeowners. Um, now, while most of neonicotinoids are being brought in through treated treated seeds, so through through treated corn or through treated soybeans, um, I think it was really it's been found that it's homeowners tend to use they're not tr- necessarily trained how to use pesticides or how to apply it or when to apply it. Um, and so while it's not really the vast quantity of how these chemicals are being used, it's the most oftentimes the way that they're being misused. And so we're now, Vermont has restricted um, these, these and brought, take, or getting them off the shelves of places um, where like hardware stores where homeowners can purchase them because they're really not necessary. I mean, they're being sold so that people can spray their, their rose gardens um, and they're just incredibly harmful to to pollinators and to insects in general. So yeah, so cut down on using so many chemicals and then create some nice pollinator habitat. And then also supporting organic agriculture and small farms that um, you know are doing their best to grow plants um, in an ecologically friendly way. Uh, and it's funny, I think I've being in this in this um, you know, in this position of a, a bee researcher and an advocate for bee conservation, a lot of people come up to me and say, "I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a beekeeper because I wanted to help save the bees. Or I, I want to do my part, so I'm going to become a beekeeper." And you know, based on our discussion this whole time, you know, you'd see why that's such a disconnect. It's like I said this um, some before. It's like it's like being interested in. Um, wanting to do something for bird conservation and then saying you're going to become a chicken farmer. It's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's no honeybees are not native in their agricultural. It's great. It's great. You want to take on that hobby, but that's, but the issue is if you're not going to do it, it beekeeping is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. You have to do a lot of things to keep your bees, um, you know, pathogen free. And if you're not willing to put in the effort, you're actually could be causing harm to, to your own bees, to the your, maybe your neighbor's bees, and um, now we're seeing to the to the large the pollinator community at large if if your pathogens are spilling over. That was environmental scientist and pollination specialist Samantha Alger on the threat facing our bee population. If this episode left you buzzing for more animal chat, then tune in next week when we talk to paleontologist Ross Barner about the impressive mammals that lived during the Pleistocene. If you fancy something a little more sciencey, we have more than a hundred more podcasts for you to take your pick from. So subscribe wherever you listen to your pods and leave a rating or review. That way we can produce more and better podcasts in the future. Otherwise, grab a copy of the latest BBC Science Focus magazine, which is packed full of features, interviews and other fun facts. This month, we're investigating the surprising science of self-control. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.